Welcome to the International Museum of Dance podcast, Modcot, where we examine why we dance. I'm your host, Jamie Ray Wright. Today we have a special treat. The International Museum of Dance is staffed by a number of, of very eclectic people, all working artists themselves, all with a history. And we'd like to introduce you to them one by one. Today, we're going to be talking to the Director of Cinematic Engagement, Patricia Ermanjad. Did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, you did. That was perfect. Well, thank you very much for taking a few minutes with me, Patricia. Of course. I've only seen you a few times, uh, once in a person-to-person meeting, and Mod Pot being virtual and national in its scope, uh, we're all over the place in uh, where we're sitting. I'm sitting in the conference room at Lions Dance Center. Uh, in San Francisco. You were in Colorado, I understand? That's right. Colorado Springs, Colorado. What a great, uh, beautiful setting. I, I've been there a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we try to do every time, as far as for our audience, is just get a sense of who you are, who the person is we're, we're talking with, uh, where they came from, and what kinds of influences brought them to dance or brought dance to them. Can you tell us a little bit of your story? Sure. Yeah, I would love to. I am uh, actually native of Switzerland. I was born in the French part of Switzerland in Aigle, and my family immigrated over here when I was in fourth grade, which was a little while ago. <laughs> but So I've been here in the United States since fourth grade. My love for dance started really early in Switzerland, studying ballet at the Basel Ballet. And then uh, when I came over to the United States, um, I continued my studies all the way through college. College led to moving to New York City, having a career there with the Martha Graham Ensemble, and then uh, moving on to graduate school at the University of Irvine. And then I came back to Colorado College, which is my alma mater, where I currently teach dance, uh, video dance, dance technique, all sorts of aspects of dance. I feel like at this moment, it might be important or interesting to say that that is also where I met Hilary Palanza, who, as you know, is the CEO of iMod, and she was my student. And that is our, that's our, our little story. That's how we know each other. So your dance training, starting early on, were you a typical bunhead, or did you have wider aspirations? I was a bunhead. Yes, I was a bunhead. However, I, I, I studied ballet in Switzerland, but I was living in Germany. And there I was also vaulting, which is working with horses. So <laughs> that sort of stuck with me just in terms of trying different, different things. But, you know, as I got older, dancers really were encouraged to do so much more than just class. There's a lot of cross- training in yoga and and you're encouraged to do other dance forms. But, you know, when I was young, it was really just ballet and jazz, a little bit of tap. But I, I really got turned on to contemporary dance in college. And that was, that felt like home to me. That felt like my movement language that fit my body. It fit my personality because it had it had a lot of freedom in it and a lot of uh, self expression in it. And that's what I love and do to this day is contemporary dance and improvisation, contact improvisation. So, did you uh, was it a particular teacher or a particular company that inspired you? Well, that's a wonderful question. 
I mean, my main contemporary dance training really came out of Martha Graham technique, which is a, an incredible movement language that builds strong bodies that are able to move in and out of the floor very fluidly. But I would say what marks my career probably are, are strong mentorships with women. In particular, uh, my professor at Colorado College, Yunyo Wang, who was who is from Taiwan, was really instrumental in opening up so many doors, opportunities, um, traveling to Taiwan, Hong Kong, Malaysia with her, and just allowing me to imagine a life and a career in dance, which can be really easy to, to, to not pursue, right? There's so many reasons not to do it. And yet she was such an example to me as, as a professor. I just, a couple of weeks before I graduated, I, I looked at her and I said, I, I want to do what you do. And, that's, and she said, well, we got to go to New York City. So that's what I did. And then right now, I have another wonderful relationship, a uh, mentorship with artist Eiko Otake, who is a, an uh an artist in residence at Colorado College. Um, she's been coming every other year for the past 10 years or so. So I think I have to say that is what sustains me are those mentorships with these incredible artists. So tell me a little bit about the training and the style of training coming up. Uh, were you exposed to contemporary in your early training when you were in Switzerland or? No, not at all. I mean, there I don't know that you could study contemporary dance in Switzerland. It would have been quite fringe. It was very much ballet was was what you did. Certainly, that was what young girls did in Germany and in Switzerland. Coming to the United States, I was exposed to like baton twirling and <laughs> things like that, jazz technique, tap. But contemporary, you know, really didn't make its way into studios uh, until in, until later. Because I was, I'm thinking like 80s, 90s is when I was growing up. So my first real exposure to contemporary dance was actually at a Ballet West summer school. So it was a ballet program, but they offered some contemporary. And my first sort of introduction to it was felt very foreign. I felt very uncomfortable, as many ballerinas do, studying a movement language, which is much more deeply connected and honors your own self-expression, right? Ballet, as much as, as you can bring great artistic voice to ballet, largely you are following a very set set of steps. You are largely doing what someone else asks you to do. And what I love in contemporary dance is a big part of the expression there is your own choice, your own choice as to how to move, when to move, with whom to move. So that was that was Ballet West was my first earliest exposure in high school. But then when I went to college, college is where contemporary dance, I think, really was grounded and, and took off. And so that's where I was exposed. And then right out of college, then I went to New York City to study gram technique. It's very interesting because we in America look to Europe as uh, the folks who are pushing the, the edges and it seems, I guess in this case, the opposite, where America is where uh, folks are thinking ahead and uh, tradition means so much more. Uh, yes. Yes, and it depends you know, where in Europe. I mean, I was not living in a major city like Berlin or Paris or London, where I think some of these, some amazing contemporary artists um, have come out of. But, you know, I was living in a smaller town. So, yeah. So that's that's probably why. <laughs> well, uh, tell me a little bit about your uh, your time at Graham. 
Uh, what period was that? Was the uh, uh, was Martha still around at the time? She stayed for quite a while. She did, and unfortunately, she was not. I think did I think she died in 1991? Is that possible? And then I arrived. I graduated from Carl College in 1996, and promptly uh, got a U-Haul and and drove out there <laughs> uh, to New York City, and was there until 2001, where I then went to grad school. And I was with Graham pretty much the entire time. And it was a time where it was a very tumultuous time. I I went very happy that I was able to experience all that that happened at Graham. So, for example, Ron Protus was the gentleman who Martha Graham gave her company to her her works to, and unfortunately, that was somewhat mismanaged. And eventually, the school of Martha Graham, which was separate from her, some her, the school is separate from her, her choreographic works, legally speaking. They actually took Ron Protus to court. And so I was there when the school um, was in, in high litigation, when we lost the building that was originally, boy, on 7, not 79th, what was it, on 63rd Street, maybe? But it was the original building that Martha Graham had. Unfortunately, we lost that building and they leveled that building to build something new. <laughs> so I, I was there at a very tumultuous time. and But I felt like as I, well, I was living through history. and they, And and I was constantly finding pieces of Martha in, you know, uh, old papers that were signed by Martha Graham that were blank, just a blank statement, you know, a blank um, piece of paper that just had her signature on it, for example. These were things I, because I worked on scholarship there. And so I had to go through files and, and cabinets and clean up an old photograph of hers. And people would always tell stories about Martha and lots of wild stories. So it was, it was a, a it's so different being there at the Graham company than the reading about Martha Graham, right? That's what it really taught me or reading in the New York Times, what they were saying about the company and the litigations felt so different than my experience of being in the thick of things. So there, I, I just, yeah. read those articles uh, when it was happening and, you know, we cool. were sitting over here in lines wondering, you know, <laughs> of all the and the, and the like, and how that how that uh, works and how to preserve it. It's always something that a uh, that s some of these uh, you know first movement choreographers, uh, Martha Graham, Rose Cunningham, uh, uh, Paul Taylor, are all they end up uh, having some complications once they leave. Yeah, I mean, legacy is is huge, right? And how how do you handle legacy correctly, I think is one of those things that is yet, because it's also often tied with money and finances. And certainly Graham had serious issues with that. And I'm always so pleased now to follow them on Instagram or and just see how they're really thriving and doing really well. So yeah, it feels, you know, it feels good. It's not easy to navigate those types of personalities and challenges. Yeah, for, for these major dance companies, right? So you mentioned that what we were reading in the newspaper, what we were reading in the newspaper was a a straight, you know, business litigation story. It was much different than your actual experience with the company. Can you to talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, what I unfortunately what I would say is there was there's just it's such a complicated dysfunctional family. I think is is how you know we often refer to it um, because 
There are so many generations that studied with Graham and different ideas about what her technique, the particulars of each piece, right, of, of the repertory and exactly where the contraction lives or which finger is placed where, you know, how you exactly cup the hands and why. There are so many complexities and so many egos in a sense that I think when you're reading something in a paper, it has to be simplified and it has to you see this black and white version of what is unfortunately much more complicated and much, and, but in some ways also much clearer. I mean, Ron Protus essentially was someone who had a lot of difficulty leading the company because I think he was not, did not come from a dance or art, artistic background. He was a photographer, but yeah, so that there, you know, it just made it more difficult. And they made it more difficult. Uh, do you find that, well, first of all, I've never had the pleasure of seeing the Graham Company in person. I've only seen them on television. Uh, so it's uh, not very much, not very, not very much exposure to the company. So it's hard for me to judge where I don't, that's, you know, where I see lots and lots of work. So well, certain, but do you find that since she's gone, that the movement, the vocabulary, uh, the, uh, the tone of the work itself has changed? The change for you then, and then following up with Instagram now, do you do you see it different, or do you see it as evolved? Oh, absolutely! It has to change. It can't stay the same. Our bodies, the physicality of dancers today is different. Even though they're they're still doing this incredible repertory and legacy that Martha Graham left behind. Yes, it's, I mean it's very it's very different today than than it was when I was there. It has to be. It has to be, you know, an example of that actually that that I have that is um, is not gram related. As an educator, I like to show Alvin Ailey's revelations, and I always would show the original with Judith Jameson. And recently, I found that um, it's more difficult to find those clips. They've replaced many of them with the newer company, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a new company, but it's different. It's just different. Um, it's the same steps, but they're different people, different bodies in a different time. And so, you know, using Revelations as an example, and I, I, uh, I've talked about this with other Black choreographers. I mean, first of all, you know, the Judith Jameson Revelation, Alvin Ailey, that's something that's inspired all of us as, as Black choreographers. Wow. Yeah. You know, one, one of those things. Yeah. And also being of a certain age, living through the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. uh, Revelations really was, in, in some senses, a statement that called out to that movement, that called out that we are here, that here is our culture, and here we are as a, as human beings, and, and the richness of it. And it, to a younger generation, even a younger generation of, uh, of Black dancers, Black audiences, who did not experience, you know, 1965, it yeah. is... It, it, it's been difficult to bridge that meaning. Mm. So that, that, that's it, it's interesting that you bring up revelations in that, in that regard. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I think from one performance, uh, Robert Moses uh, mm -hmm. who appeared in his podcast a few episodes ago. He had mentioned to me that he went to a performance where they actually played news clips or newsreels of the civil rights movement on a screen behind Revelation to say, to try to 
educate the audience on the connection between what's going on on the stage and what was going on at the time. He wrote it in the late 50s. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how you continue that. And I'm sure that, you know, some of the clips I've seen of Graham go back to the 30s and 40s when when she was still dancing herself. And it, it was so revolutionary to see what kind of movement she was doing. I'm sure that it had a lot to do with the uh, call-outs to the Art Deco movement and things along that line. Mm-hmm. Uh, which may or may not be understood today. Doesn't it? Is that a fair comment? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that contextualizing the work is incredibly important and both for the dancer and for the audience. I think that's an important point, right? Um, and it's really on the company. It's up to them to see how the work ages, right? How is it still relevant? And in fact, I mean, that's what makes, I think, you know, pieces like Revelations or Lamentation part of, for me, the contemporary dance canon, right? I've often thought about like, what is the canon and why in contemporary dance? So, but of course, as, you know, the movement has changed so much and new techniques have come and it has to, right? That is the nature of contemporary, right? Even, right, it was called modern dance and, it, and then of course it shifted to contemporary dance. So what is contemporary today? And with new techniques like Gaga technique and it's just the the heel of the hand or the heel of the foot that Martha Graham so sort of violently put forward, you know, in in the 40s and 50s reads very differently today. It's not as offensive as it was, right? But I think if you present it in the right way, in the right context, you can still really feel how how edgy that work is. And I suppose as a as a female choreographer and dancer who is about to turn 50, one of the things that I really value in Graham, in the Graham repertory are really fantastic roles for older women because of course Martha danced well into her 60s 70s so yeah you know that's that i think doesn't that hasn't changed i think that that still is a very appealing part of the of the Graham legacy yeah that that is a very interesting point something i had not thought about and will if i go when i go back to revisit some of those uh clips of Graham mm-hmm. you to keep that in mind again, it's, it's context is is very very important. And if you uh, sometimes if you here's a case of me not knowing the context, then missing something very very important about the work. Right, and I mean one of the things honestly that I value the most about having studied Graham so intensely was understanding and being able to see how much of her movement vocabulary is lives in other techniques. And of course, she didn't invent the hinge, right? Merce Cunningham supposedly invented the bison jump, right? Which is a big attitude, double attitude jump with a contraction. He was a beautiful um, jumper, as you know. But, you know, so I'm not saying that Graham originated contractions, of course. I mean, we all contract every day. But but I, I loved... I love being able to see in Revelations, you know, going back to that that beautiful work, all the pleadings and all the all all the movement that that you know absolutely they shared at that moment, right? They were all discovering this new language together. So yeah, there you go. So uh, applying the Graham technique is is still well, it's a very 
It's a very odd question. There, there are folks who express that they a dislike of Graham thing. <laughs> yep. And uh, I mean, is it still viable? Does it still have its uh, fans? Is it something that's going to uh, eventually not be studied, not be uh, taught? Oh, absolutely. I think I think that that is that is unfortunately Graham's Graham's fault, right? Um, the Graham School's fault in some sense is they have a very careful. They very carefully share their technique with folks. It's not, I don't know that, I don't know if they have a certification program now, but at the time when I studied there, I, I, they didn't. And um, to this day, I can't say that I teach the Martha Graham technique. I can say that I teach the technique of Martha Graham or, <laughs> or something like that, you know, like, because, mm-hmm. and I think that that, that it's, it's narrow-minded. I think it's really important to not treat something so preciously Right, because you can argue for ten, ten years, a hundred years, what the exact what Graham had wanted, but she's not here anymore. So we have to make Graham technique what it is right now, and and how it's useful today, and it's incredibly useful today because it 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 has a way of bringing your torso to life that is so important, and the the use of, like I said, the floor going in and out of the floor, up and down, up off the floor is incredibly useful. But I don't, it's also incredibly rigorous. And I, as, as a dance technique teacher at the college level, I am very careful with what I pick from the Graham syllabus, because it can also, if you're not strong enough, it can also be quite difficult on the knees with all the pretzels and all the knee, you know, the the knee um, walks. I don't remember what they're called right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> knee crawls, knee crawls. So yes, I think it absolutely is in danger of dying. I've always thought of it as Latin. To me, it it's basically it's Latin. You know, it's inc- it's it's everywhere, and it, you can see foundations of it. It can be incredibly useful to study, but no one's choreographing new gram pieces. You know, there's a reason for that. Many people don't really know what good gram is, unfortunately, because I again I don't think that they created a program where they really allowed people to study it in the way and then to to go and teach it somewhere else. They were just too precious in my mind. You know, that was. My criticism when I left, I just felt like everything was too careful, and then and then it dies, you know. Well, that's in contrast to Gaga, which is much much younger, and who knows what will happen to Gaga? Yeah, thirty forty years from now. Yeah, but they seem to have been able to reach out to the larger community to have both control and coverage. Correct. That they have the, they have the certification program, and they are you know very aggressive against people who use the word gaga in descriptions. I don't know how they find out, but they do. Uh, yes. But uh, you don't get the sense that it is unavailable. Correct. Yeah, I mean, the organization, thinking ahead, fundraising, all those things were not in my day of studying at Graham. And like I said, I was there at a very tumultuous time is very different than it is today because we have different leadership today. Yeah. All of that, that was not their strength. Right. And so, yeah, it just, it's just a very difficult, it's a very difficult thing when the ownership of the rights to dance pieces go to the quote unquote wrong person. Right. And and who's to say who the right person is. But in this case, I think 
is problematic. Well, you're a director of cinematic engagement, which means you probably have a dance for film background. <laughs> yep. So, you know, how 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 has the film brought itself into your practice? How did it do it at, at, at the first stages? And uh, what were your goals in, in doing that? Well, I have loved images since I was a child. My mom was a professional photography from photographer from Germany. And so photography and film has always been a part of my life. But I was introduced to screen dance or dance for film or dance cinema or dance for the camera or <laughs> lots of different names for the same thing. I was introduced to that in graduate school at the University of Irvine with Professor Lisa Noggle by being in dance films and also being encouraged to make my own dance films. So that was that was also right at the cusp of when computers, personal computers, were really getting cheap enough and good enough that software like iMovie was readily av available. And so I bought myself a nice uh, Mac tower and and just started editing, just started cutting films. And I loved it. I would spend hours doing it. And that love translated into teaching uh, then at Colorado College um, when I got my job there. And I currently I teach video dance. And of course, film, as you know, continues to be a, a very popular major and a very popular class. Does a screen dance owe any legacy to uh, the large set pieces that were done in the, mostly in the 40s, 50s, and 60s on film. I was just looking at Bye Bye Birdie yesterday and just saw this incredibly complex uh, set piece there and wondering, are there are there similarities in the approach of the camera there, uh, say art and screen dance, the way you practice it and the way contemporary people practice it today? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the dance on film history absolutely includes has to include Hollywood for all, all of its uh, positive and negatives, right? I mean, the work of Busby Berkeley, of course, and and before Hollywood, of course, maybe more importantly, the work of Maya Darren, who was, you know, avant-garde filmmaker, you know, that all of it, we owe, we absolutely owe a lot to that legacy because it's, it's so short too, <laughs> right? I mean, when we're talking about screen dance history, it's not the same as talking about music history, right? I mean, it's it's just, it's so much shorter. It's such a new genre. It's such a niche genre. Many, many people don't know about it. And, but yes, there are, we, we have learned from it. And like always, we, we learn from it and we turn away from it, right? It's like when Cunningham left the Graham Company and Paul Taylor, they left because they didn't want to do what Martha did. So even though she was revolutionary, then they felt like that became, you know, too old school and they wanted to do their own revolution, right? And so similar to that, you know, we have to study those, the older works to to know how to how to revolt, right? How to say, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's a very interesting point. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Busby Berkeley because his, his thing was all about the camera movement and all about the, the setting. How how is screen dance approached now? Or is, is that is that not a uh, is that a rather naive question? I mean, is it approached to where you are the dance becomes the uh, main focus, or the dance as it's edited becomes the main focus? Mm. Say say that again. So it's, I'm not quite sure what you're asking. Say that again. Well, I wonder what reigns supreme in screen dances. Does the editing or does the movement reign supreme? Oh, that's lovely. Um, I think, you know, 
there are, there's no one answer to that. There are some dance, screen dances that are not very heavily edited. So the editing is not as, not really used as a tool to drive the narrative forward or as a tool to somehow manipulate time. And then there are other screen dances where it's heavily, heavily influenced by editing. And it's, and it's, and you can see it while you're watching it. You're like, oh, this is all about the cut and the edit and, and playing with time rewinding or fast forwarding or, you know, playing with all those elements that we coincidentally can do in choreography in real time. But in film, it, it does it in a much more sort of inflated, hyper way, right? Slow mo can be really, really slow. And you, it's a tool that's used very effectively. But, you know, dance on film is always changing. And and it's important to follow those changes. And But at the heart, it, there really is a true synthesis between dance and cinematography, right? Where the emphasis lies on choreography, which is created and adapted specifically for the camera, right? I mean, that's how I would define dance cinema. So as you go into the studio or as you go into the environment, you're, the camera is something that's kept in mind in, during the creation process. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what, a great way to think about it is that, and this is why oftentimes in screen dance, you, you have a dancer in front of the camera and you have a dancer behind the camera. And that makes all the difference. Because oh. a dance, a dancer's perspective behind the camera and their movement, right? So not just how they move, but how they see the world, to me is what defines screen dance. But that's my personal sort of take because I am a dancer and a mover and a choreographer. There are some very, very successful and fantastic films where, you know, the person behind the camera is not the dancer, but often it's directed by a dancer. But again, I don't, I don't want to define it by those labels or, or roles because there's too many variation. I think it's not doing it justice. But in screen dance, the, the movement is priority. It's driving forward the narrative and film is capturing that in all of its possibilities, right? So they have to talk to each other. Um, they're coordinating together. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Uh, I I see it as a young art, yeah, notwithstanding. But the screen dance that, that is going to the festivals and the like now is that it's a young art, and I see a lot of different ways this is interpreted. I think the one big thing that happened was uh there's a Canadian version of Dracula that was a uh, that was a ballet and had those elements of the movement and the cuts together. Being uh, it, it 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 struck me as a as as a dance film as opposed to a, a, a capturing of the Dracula story. It was a very interesting. I don't know if you've seen it, but Dracula, pages from the version's diary. No, I would love to look that up. I will definitely look that up. Yeah. It's... I mean, that's what, you know, I think producing a film nowadays is so accessible. I mean, that's what's so exciting. There are so many dance films being made. And at the height of COVID, that was what dance turned to was film. Absolutely. Like concert dance. So that was as much as COVID was difficult, it did sort of give a big boost, a, a little renaissance, right, of of dance for film. So it's very exciting. I think it's I think it's great that everyone walks around with a camera that's basically good enough to shoot almost a feature film, right? <laughs> yeah, really people are shooting high quality things on their on their iPhone. Yeah, and so I, 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 I think making it in the theaters here. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and I, I think that democratizing dance in that way is very important because I don't think that you have to have a huge budget or high production value to make an excellent dance film. And I often teach my students that, you know, you don't have to have a big budget. You have to have an idea, mm -hmm. right? But you don't have to. Now, I love, I, I'm not against big um, budget movies in, you know, screen dance. I think that they're very important. And I'm, and I'm glad to see that the, some of the production value in some screen dance is just extraordinary. It's so exciting to see. But it, you know, as someone who makes screen dances, I think it's, it's quite lovely to know that I have everything I need to make what I want to say. So let's talk about your, uh, your role as the uh, director of cinematic engagement. First of all, what is that? <laughs> and, Absolutely. You know, how, how do you see that as not only moving IMOD forward, but moving the uh, art of dance forward? Absolutely. So as a director of cinematic engagement for the International Museum of Dance, I have several different roles. Last year in the summer of 2022, I was working with Hillary on Moving Southwest Santa Fe, which was a summer dance festival during which I produced a dance film festival in collaboration with the Sans Souci Festival of Dance Cinema that's uh, right here in Boulder, Colorado, the San Francisco Dance Film Festival, and Cinedance, which is out of Netherlands. And so we showed films over the period of three weeks from all over the world. And that is what I love about screen dances is, is how you can really show it anywhere. It's much cheaper than mounting a, a large production. So that is something that that's one aspect of my job. Uh, the other thing that I'm, I'm really excited about is the launch of a academic library for screen dance um, through iMod Cinema. So iMod Cinema will be an online platform um, where we where we're, we're able to watch screen dance. Um, educators can go to this website or this platform and see films that are contextualized and and available. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, the challenge is we there are all these screen dance festivals all over the world, but unless you're able to travel, you're really not going to see the majority of those films. Now, some of them are online. Some of the dance festivals, uh, the screen dance festivals are online, but often it's not all the films. And even then you can only watch them just that one time. So as an educator, that's frustrating because I want to show my students these films. So this idea of creating an academic library of screen dance evolved, you know, sort of came to be. So that's something that right now we're in the early stages of establishing, you know, the the groundwork for that. Well, it'd be, it'd be great to have a uh, repository for that. Yes. Uh, wanting, you know, wanting to see more of, uh, of the work and also finding ways to bring that work to a wider audience, you know. So I'm I'm kind of selfish in that. You know, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm also nice. able to actually uh, engage. There's that engagement work. Engage a wider audience to uh, see dance in one way and perhaps consume it in all its in all its channels. Absolutely, absolutely. I think one of the things that you know is a challenge for artists is that it takes every part of us to make work. And to put it out there, but it's, I think it takes an organization like the International Museum of Dance to organize and to curate and to help connect the dots between these artists and to 
to contextualize the work so that it gets into the right into into anyone's hands who who wants to see films happening in the far corners of the Netherlands or of Zimbabwe or Los Angeles. You know, it's it's I can tell you that it's very difficult to 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 find all of these films. And so and if the work isn't being seen and shared, then then why why make it? You know, so I I right now I'm I'm really kind of thinking a lot about licensing and and also a, a you know, how do these artists make money? How can we find ways to generate some support for for artists? Because so often dancers are asked to do things for free. Yeah. Um, so there are many, many questions involved when you're trying to to essentially democratize dance cinema, right? Yeah, definitely that that uh, difference between different art forms, difference between different uh, levels within the art form. If there's a, again, Going back to watching this little segment from Bye Bye Birdie, the discussion I got into with the person I was watching with was uh, how much the main characters in that dance made, who were, well, to be fair, Anne Margaret was is a dancer, but you know she's right. the star of the movie, the actors of the movie, and you had fifty dancers there, probably not not unionized, right? And there was a huge gap between what she made and what the rest of the people in that scene made, even though they're all doing the same movement. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> not sure how to get there because until um, we can get get the general public to actually value dance as an art form, uh, just see it not as just decoration or entertainment, but as an art in and of itself that it yes. is value. And it has universal value, not just for not just for rich elites. Absolutely, so absolutely, yeah. What do you have? Uh, what do you have in store for your own personal uh, practice, as far as you know, what you're doing with the college and and things? You anything exciting coming up there? Oh well, um, I mean, you know, I just started teaching on Monday again. Carl College just started, so for me, the academic year is always very invigorating. Um, I get a lot of ideas. I love staying current with the students. You know, I get older every year, but they're always 18 to 22. So, <laughs> and, but there's something about that that I love. They really keep me current. They really help me to notice how it's, how things are changing. So that is something I value in my practice. And then professionally, I would say, I just uh, cut an edit with Eiko Otake of a film that we shot here in Colorado. So I'll be submitting that to festivals with her. And yeah, I mean, for me, the balance lies in making work. But what's exciting about being the director of cinematic engagement with iMod is simply the prospect of being able to reach a larger audience, right? To To build something where we can find an appreciation and a respect for dance so that we can connect the dots and build a larger diverse community. I think my observation, having been a dancer in studios, having been a teacher in colleges, is simply that we're all so busy that we can't fully network and 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 enjoy how how rich it is what we do you know and i do see imod as as a vehicle for connecting those dots connecting people and really celebrating dance well let's hope that we can 
we can actually live up to those expectations. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's a, It's been a pleasure getting to know you more. I truly appreciate your art form and your uh, your contributions. And I would love offline to talk more about this because it's, it's new to me. Screen dance is new to me. Oh. Well, relatively. That, yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Jamie, you're the perfect example. I think many, many people who love dance and know dance don't know screen dance. Yeah. So that's perfect. I'm sure there are lots of little nooks and crannies to explore. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with you, Jamie. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you next time. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you for listening today. ModPod, the International Amusement of Dance podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other discerning streaming services. Remember to subscribe and rate us. Give us five stars because we are fabulous. The International Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.